Africa, rise and shine. Africa, sora. Africa, amka na unai. Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. And I am Lulu Gabu driving the show with Anne Musa, Wisani Matebula and Figile Lingwati. Top stories in Africa rise and shine at this hour. New report details gross human rights abuses in the Central African Republic and Zimbabwean opposition leader rejects pressure to resign. In Economics Africa Frontiers Forum gets underway in Johannesburg and in sports news tough draw for South Africa in the African Nations Championship. But first the news with Anne Musa. Good morning. Zimbabwe's opposition leader Morgan Changarai has rejected mounting pressure from within his party and externally to resign following his July election defeat. The latest score comes from a South African-based group representing Zimbabweans in the diaspora. It has urged leaders of the two movement for democratic change factions to step aside for fresh leadership and for the two parties to reunite. Changarai says the National Council has voted his stays until party congress reviews his position in 2016. There is no sacred issue to debate. If there is need for leadership renewal, we don't suppress it. We actually encourage it. But you don't just walk up in the street and say, Swangirai must go. There are processes that should be instituted and there are forums that will make that decision. One of those key forums is a Congress. Human Rights Watch is calling for UN member states to publicly oppose the possible attendance of Sudan's president to this year's UN General Assembly New York. The State Department earlier confirmed that Omar al-Bashir, who is accused of war crimes, has applied for a visa to travel to New York later this month. Showen Bryce Peace reports. Although calling the request deplorable, the State Department is obliged to grant visas to foreign nationals visiting the United Nations, but those travel documents can be restricted. Human Rights Watch is calling for governments to shun Bashir if it comes, calling his possible visit a brazen challenge to Security Council efforts to promote justice for the crimes in Darfur. The visit would be the first to the United States or the United Nations by someone subject to an ICC arrest warrant. The U.S. is not a signatory to the Rome Statute. Egyptian officials have reopened the Rafah border crossing with the besieged Gaza Strip after a week-long shutdown. The officials reportedly decided to reopen the crossing for four hours. On September the 11th, Egyptian authorities shut down the border crossing after deadly bomb attacks in the rest of Sinai Peninsula. Eleven people, including seven civilians, were killed and 17 others injured into car bomb attacks targeting the headquarters of Egyptian security forces in Rafah's Imam Ali area in North Sinai. Angolan police have vowed to use force if necessary to crack down on an anti-government youth protest planned for today in the capital Luanda. The Angolan Revolutionary Movement, which has held several protests since 2011, urging President José Eduardo dos Santos to resign after 34 years in power, says the march will be peaceful and is protected by Angolan law. Amnesty International has called on Angolan authorities not to suppress the march, avoid making arbitrary arrests and to use force only if strictly necessary. The run-up to the protest was marked by the arrest of a 17-year-old activist for allegedly printing protest slogans on T-shirts that police said defamed the president and incited violence to topple the government. 
The First Lady of Uganda has stepped up her efforts to fight HIV. Janet Museveni showed her commitment to stopping new HIV infections in children by bringing a national campaign to Karamoja, one of the most disadvantaged regions of her country. She launched the Elimination of Mother-to-Child Transmission of HIV campaign in Muroto, a city in the northeastern region. Don Bob reports. The campaign is part of the government's push to prevent new HIV infections among children by promoting an antiretroviral therapy ART regimen where all pregnant women living with HIV are provided ART for life. This is consistent with the 2013 World Health Organization guidelines which recommended that ART be initiated in certain populations including pregnant and breastfeeding women in resource-limited settings. Speaking at the launch, the First Lady, who is also the Cabinet Minister for Karamoja Affairs, said, sadly, 65 babies are born with HIV every day in Uganda, adding, we must give appropriate life-saving messages if we are going to reverse this trend. And that's the news for this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. A Human Rights Watch official says large parts of the Central African Republic are in complete anarchy, describing the country as a failed state. The organization has just released a report detailing gross human rights violations throughout the country by Seleka rebels in the main while calling on the international community to provide logistical support to efforts to re-establish the rule of law in the country. The report titled, I Can Still Smell the dead the forgotten human rights crisis in the Central African Republic hopes to highlight a deteriorating crisis that has been overshadowed by conflict in other regions of the world. Show and Bryce Peace reports. The report includes satellite images before and after of villages burnt to the ground. As thousands of homes were destroyed, their occupants either slaughtered or hiding in the bush where they remain. I didn't see a state outside of Bonki. Louis Munch is an Africa researcher with Human Rights Watch who traveled to the Central African Republic in April. It is complete anarchy. The Seleka are a loose coalition of groups. They are not a coherent group. They have allegiance to individual leaders. They do not have allegiance to Bongi. Um, and the, the, the state that I saw was one of sheer, sheer disorder and anarchy. Uh, the administrative state under Bozizi has been completely gutted and destroyed. In town after town, we saw um, civil registers that have been destroyed. We saw courts and prosecutor's office that have been completely looted of not only documents, but of, of, of fixtures, of light fixtures, of basic furniture. There is no way for the Central African Republic outside of the capital to, to consider itself a coherent state. It is a failed state in our opinion. An idea of a failed state made all too real by examples of complete disregard for human rights and the utter ruthlessness of Seleka rebels, with a report describing a level of violence previously unknown in a country with a volatile past. The capital was completely looted and pillaged. Uh, you had civilians that were targeted <coughs> indiscriminately. Um, including women and children. Let me give you an example. I was uh, speaking with a man who only days before had to bury his wife and his infant child because he's a driver of a truck. He had shown a small degree of resistance to giving his truck to the Seleka in order for them to transport looted goods. And his wife and his child were instantly shot down in front of his eyes. The report recommends that the transitional government re-establish the rule of law and urges regional countries to bolster an AU peacekeeping force, but the report does not call for a fully-fledged UN peacekeeping mission, and we asked Lewis Mudge why. We're trying to be realistic. We know that CAR is not on the geostrategic agenda. Um, let's face the facts. This is not Syria. These are. This is an African corner that most people in the world can't point to on a map. Um, and we're not going to simply make a wish list knowing that it's not going to come true. The AU mission is there. The AU mission have a mandate. The AU mission already have troops that served under MECO PACs that know the country and that speak some of the languages. So why not reinforce this mission? Mudge says the AU force of 3,600, although not perfect, could have a greater impact if it was properly resourced calling on the international community to provide logistical, technical and financial support, while urging the Security Council to quickly impose targeted sanctions against individuals 
and to strengthen the UN's political and peace-building mission in the country. Sherwin Bryceby's New York. Zimbabwean opposition leader Morgan Changurai has rejected calls for him to resign after failing to beat Robert Mugabe for the third time in July elections that were overshadowed by rigging allegations. The Movement for Democratic Change leader, who also unveiled his shadow cabinet yesterday, says the calls were irresponsible and unnecessary. Changurai has led the opposition for 14 years, mounting the most formidable challenge to longtime ruler Robert Mugabe. Simon Muchema reports from Harare. Following a disappointing defeat in the July 31 harmonized polls, ushering in 89-year-old Robert Mugabe as the new president of Zimbabwe, pressure is mounting for leadership renewal in the opposition movement for democratic change. Of late, the local media quoted Roy Bennett, former white commercial farmer and treasurer general, in Changrai's party is having called for Changrai's resignation via the social media. The former trade unionist has been at the helm of the opposition since its inception in 1999. Since then, he has posed fierce opposition to Robert Mugabe's rule leading to the formation of Government of National Unity in 2009. Scores of party followers are blaming Changrai for having relaxed ahead of the 2013 elections, leading to the heaviest defeat ever. However, Changrai dispelled the rumors and challenged anybody wishing his early retirement to use the proper channels. At a media briefing at his party head office in Harare Wednesday, Changrai said MDC would have recalled him if there was lack of confidence in his leadership. Defiant Changrai says leadership renewal is not necessary because elections were rigged. Coming to the issue of leadership renewal, our stand is that this election was stolen. That's the narrative that is there. The election was stolen. So if the election was stolen, you can't ask for leadership renewal unless you've got other, other motivations. Changrai rubbished the media report saying, he still has a legal mandate to lead the opposition party until 2016. We have had two council meetings so far, whose position and these councils, a, a national council as an organ of the party, is an organ between congresses. So if there was any resolution that should be addressed by the party between congresses of such magnitude, that council has a res responsibility of making that resolution. Furthermore, I actually say to the councils, the council meetings that we had, that there is no sacred issue to debate. If there is need for leadership renewal, we don't suppress it. We actually encourage it. But you don't just walk up in the street and say, Changrai must go. There are processes that should be instituted and there are forums that will make that decision. One of those key forums is a Congress. The opposition leader says comments coming from the Facebook are irresponsible. First of all, let me, let me say that uh, our policy towards social media is that you can make comments about your own personal communication. But party policies are articulated through the party spokesperson. So any comment that may be made at a personal level of party issues, uh, it's irresponsible, it's not necessary. While the house is burning at Harvest House, Zimbabwean youths have expressed the hope that the new Minister of Youth will deliver. 60-year-old Francis Neymar was recently appointed Minister of Youth against a background of despair among Zimbabwean youths, most of whom are unemployed. Sali Dura, national chairperson of the Zimbabwe Youth Forum, has called for the young Zimbabweans to rally behind the new minister. While there are challenges in terms of the deliverance of the previous minister of youth affairs and how we are continuously marginalized as young people, we will yet to get 
full information on why he wouldn't deliver what he would have wanted to deliver. And as we suffer marginalization at different spaces in our lives, we also see that, you know, the government doesn't take us seriously as young people, despite us constituting 67% of the population. So with the coming in of a new minister, really, and how we would then say sometimes it's not about the age, it's about what that person will have to place on the table. And the onus is on us as young people to begin to engage, to then say why we were not politically correct in their terms to place a young person who would have been very appealing to us. They chose a 60-year-old uh, minister. And for us as young people, we need to engage and see what he has to offer. On the other hand, President Robert Mugabe has been blamed for being insensitive when it comes to gender balancing. Only three women made it into the new cabinet. However, Salidura defended the disappointing move by the 89-year-old leader as political. So as young people, we need to come together and we need to engage with the government of the day to make sure that in our numbers, our issues are advocated. History of Proven with the women's movement, they came together across the political divide, they worked together, and now they have a quota system, they now have reserved seats in parliament. So as young people, we need to reorganize ourselves and unite with each other and confront the challenge of the day, which is our marginalization. What next is the question most Zimbabwean youths, women and opposition activists are asking on daily basis? Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Today, 12 years ago, 11 members of Parliament of Eritrea were detained by that country's authorities, never to be heard of again. Arrested on what the Inter-Parliamentary Union for One calls unfounded allegations of conspiracy and attempting to overthrow the government, they have had no contact whatsoever with their families or lawyers. In 2010, unconfirmed and unofficial reports from a former prison guard who had fled Eritrea stated that nine of the 11 MPs had died, chiefly due to inhumane prison conditions and lack of medical attention. More from the head of the Inter-Parliamentary Union's Human Rights Program, Rogier Schusinger. This case concerns 11 members of Parliament who simply signed in May 2001 a letter in which they called on the President to initiate peaceful and democratic dialogue and the rule of law, and they called for justice through peaceful and legal ways and means. Now, in response to that letter, they were arrested in September 2001, taken away, and we have never heard of them again. This is for the IPU the most serious case which is pending before the Committee on the Human Rights of Parliamentarians. As far as we know, they have never been formally charged or brought to trial. They have had no contact whatsoever with their families or lawyers. So this is an extremely serious case. Are there any ideas, any speculation about what could have happened to these members of parliament? Well, what we normally do, and that's what something that the IPU, through its Committee on Human Rights of Parliamentarians, does in each of the cases that it examines across the world, is to try to establish a dialogue with the parliamentary authorities. That's the first step we do. It's both because we want the parliament to help us in finding a satisfactory solution, but also because often we need to obtain information. This is something that we've done from the beginning with the Eritrean Parliament, which, as you may know, is headed by the president of the country. We have never received any feedback whatsoever from them. We have been luckier with the Eritrean ambassador to the European Union in Brussels. In the years, immediate years following the arrest of the 11 individuals, he provided us some responses. It was always to say that the justice system was very slow, that these MPs were going to be charged, that, that judicial guarantees were being fully respected. But since 2004, we have not heard from him again, despite us insisting on meeting with him and then on getting further information. The only bit of news that we received in recent times is a report from a prison guard who fled Eritrea and he provided an interview in 2010 during which he said that 
of the 11 members of parliament, all but two, and that is Mr. Solomon in a high-level detention, would have died in prison. And he said that they had died due to a lack of medical attention and due to inhumane prison conditions. Now, this is information that we've tried to corroborate through the Eritrean parliament, but as I said before, they have never responded to us. We've tried to corroborate this through our regular partners, the UN, through the European Union, European Commission, which also has a cooperation agreement with the Eritrean authorities. But no one has been able to confirm or deny these reports. So we are still very uncertain as to what happened to these people. From what I also understand is that prison conditions in Eritrea is not exactly or necessarily what people in the rest of the world known, you know, as, as a general jail. Conditions there are very different from many other places. Absolutely. In fact, last year, because of the dire human rights situation, including the situation of prisoners, last year the UN, through its Human Rights Council, decided to appoint a special rapporteur on the human rights situation of Eritrea. And these kind of decisions are normally a great indication that the international community is really worried. This special rapporteur tried to go to Eritrea, but the authorities didn't want to receive her. So the only thing she could do was meet with the Eritrean diaspora in surrounding countries like Djibouti, and Ethiopia, where she met with those refugees and where she heard from them firsthand what the situation is like in Eritrea. And they all confirmed that the prison situation is, is horrible. The kind of combination in which the prisoners find themselves is also still based on information that is provided by Eritrean refugees outside of Eritrea. These are testimonies. We have not been able to corroborate that kind of information, but the information that has been given to us is that prisoners in Eritrea are often held in underground cells or in shipping containers, which are unbearably hot by day and freezing at night. So all of this to show as well that prisoners are not held at all in keeping with international human rights standards. As we are speaking today, 12 years after 11 members of parliament went missing, what is being done by organizations like the IPU, by other human rights groups? What is the way forward for those worried families, no doubt, of the missing members of parliament? The first thing is to make sure that the international community is not forgetting what is happening in Eritrea. Eritrea is not a country situation which easily makes headline news. And I think it's important to get the message across that these people were arrested and we simply don't know what happened to them. This is a very serious situation. Secondly, we should not give up on them and we should continue to put pressure to bear on everyone who has a stake in the future of Eritrea. We're trying to work with all the member parliaments of the IPU. There are 162 parliaments in the world that are members of our organization. And we're trying to push them to reach out to the Eritrean authorities to use all the contacts they have in trying to push the authorities to act in this case. First of all, by providing us with information on the fate of these individuals. We're doing the same thing with the United Nations, with the African Commission on Human and People's Rights, and with other international and regional partners. At the end of the day, it will be moral pressure in combination with, of course, the kind of economic leverage that all the organizations may have that could, in the end, change the situation in Eritrea, even though this may not happen tomorrow. That was Roger Huizinga, head of the Interparliamentary Union's Human Rights Program, on the line from Geneva in Switzerland, talking to Janine Gutzer. The United Nations community reiterated its belief in non-violence during a ceremony on Wednesday in observance of the International Day of Peace. The event was held ahead of the 21st of September, the actual date of the International Day, which has been commemorated since 1981. Diane Penn reports. The ceremony took place in the Rose Garden at UN headquarters where the Japanese peace bell rang out and the UN singers appealed for global peace. UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon used the occasion to once again call for a resolution to the violence in Syria. The International Day of Peace is a time for reflection, a day when we reiterate our belief in non-violence and call for a global ceasefire. We honor those killed in conflict and survivors who live with a daily trauma and pain. And we call for combatants to lay down their arms and end hostilities. Perhaps nowhere in the world is this more desperately needed 
than in Syria. The death and suffering has gone on too long. The theme for this year's celebration is education for peace. Mr. Ban recalled the words of Malala Yousafzai, the Pakistani teenager shot in the head by the Taliban, for advocating for girls' education. In an address to the General Assembly in July, Malala extolled how one teacher, one book, one pen can change the world. Mr. Ban said every child deserves a quality education. I have traveled to many war zones. I have visited families in refugee camps. The plea is often the same. Education first. The UN family is working in conflict and post-conflict environments. We are building schools, developing curricula, training teachers, and providing nourishing breakfast, breakfast and school lunches. These initiatives can transform the lives of children and help address the root causes of conflict. The International Day of Peace is officially observed on the 21st of September, and the month also marks the start of the UN General Assembly. Ambassador John Ash of Antigua and Barbuda is the president of the new session of the General Assembly, which opened this week. Let us remember that education is a path to growth and development for citizens and societies, and that education that teaches the value of peace is a key preventative means of reducing war and conflict. Young people are also exploring the theme of education for peace in a conference taking place at the UN following the ceremony. Diane Penn, United Nations. Chad is to embark on a plan to eliminate food insecurity and boost progress on the Millennium Development Goals. Up to 25% of that country's population face the risk of going hungry and more than a third of children are chronically malnourished. The program aims to cut the malnutrition rate in half and reduce the percentage of the population suffering from chronic hunger to less than 21% by 2015. Chad has faced recurring food crisis since the 1970s due to climate-related reasons. Deployed over a period of three years, the one billion U.S. dollar scheme will bring together government and local and international development actors to identify bottlenecks and practical solutions to tackle food security over time. More from Thomas Gatner, United Nations Development Program resident representative. There are various approaches towards the elimination of food insecurity. It is a massive challenge to ensure that the more than 3 million food insecure people will be able to focus on their economic activities without having to be afraid of having hunger. So what we are working on with various government agencies is developing an acceleration framework and a plan of action to combat food insecurity and uh, malnutrition, which not only looks at increasing agricultural production, but also working on better health and on working on better education. Now, this program is also to help boost the progress on the Millennium Development Goals, which has the deadline of 2015. How confident are you that you will be able to reach that deadline? I think we can make progress because what we are doing is introducing ways and means where in particular women working in agriculture will be able to start producing more by having better means at their disposal like multifunctional platforms which should cut down uh, the time of work to produce food. But we will only be able to reach some steps of the target. We probably won't be able to reach the target on food security here in Chad. We will have to continue well beyond 2015 to ensure that food security is established across the country. Exactly what will this program focus on? What does it entail? And how will it help um, assist the people in Chad, particularly those on the grassroots um, levels? Well, we have launched a, a pilot program in the east of the country where many, many hundreds of thousands have been affected by conflict until very recently. 
They had to flee their villages of origin. So what we are trying to do now is provide them with better means of production, of agricultural productions, but also with strengthening the uh, authorities' capacity to support the populations in those areas. So what we should be hoping to achieve is that by dynamizing in particularly women groups and cooperatives to create better conditions for them in the agricultural work, better access to markets, through also better support by the authorities in their daily labor. We find that Chad has ample natural resources. It has accelerated rates of growth. It has also made progress on the number of the Millennium Development Goals, such as primary education, the number of women who have been elected in Parliament, as well as combating HIV and AIDS. However, it is found that half of the population live below the national poverty line, also with limited access to basic social services. Why is this so? Well, the reason you have these huge challenges facing Chad is that after 40 years of conflict and civil strife, the country started out on a path of reconstruction and of development barely four or five years ago, and the first step that needed to be taken was to secure the area. Security had to be reestablished. That had been successful. It is indeed a positive trend that we have more enrollment into schools, but one factor that, for example, still preoccupies us is that girls still tend to drop out of school at a very early stage. So this is a trend we need to still start reversing because it will be extremely important for the long-term development. So we really need to set our goals beyond just 2015 and really start taking these goals ahead into the post-2015 development agenda. That was Thomas Gatner, United Nations Development Program resident representative on the line from N'Djamena in Chad, talking to Kumutomo Pulane. We now cross over to Anne Musa for the headlines. Good morning. Armed factions from Mali's desert communities agree to peace talks to end an 18-month crisis triggered by a Tuareg uprising. Egyptian officials reopened the Rafah border crossing with the besieged Gaza Strip after a week-long shutdown. And Angolan police vowed to use force if necessary to crack down on an anti-government youth protest planned for today. Details and more at the top of the hour. Thank you, Anne. Rich and poor nations are being urged to diversify their crops and boost support to small farmers, according to a new report launched by the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, UNCTAD. It recommends a rapid and significant shift away from monoculture and industrial farming because they are not providing sufficient affordable food where needed. Furthermore, the environmental damage caused by this approach is unsustainable. Jocelyn Sambira reports. Wake up before it's too late is the strong warning issued by the UN Trade and Development Agency to the world during the launch of its report on trade and environment on Wednesday. The report argues for a more sustainable approach to agriculture for food security in a changing climate. It says the current methods of monoculture and industrial farming are not producing enough food and they are damaging the environment. UNCTAD is encouraging governments to give more support to small-scale farmers and to locally focused production and consumption. Ulrich Hoffman, senior trade policy advisor, is one of the authors of this report. Roughly 70% of the food globally is produced by small producers, not international supply chains. International supply chains play a supplementary role, one-third. So, What is important, therefore, to recall is that these farmers are also a key source of employment and income. To drive home the point, Hoffman gives China as an example of an industrialized country where 600 to 700 million people 
twice the size of Europe, are still living on agriculture. Furthermore, industrial farming, which relies heavily on external inputs such as fertilizer, agrochemicals, and concentrate feeds, has not produced sufficient food where it's needed. Ulrich Hoffman of UNCTAD again. The yields have not correspondingly increased as a result of higher input use, in particular fertilizers. So that has led to the fact that the global environmental limit or the global environmental boundary for nitrogen has already been passed. So we are, as far as nitrogen is concerned, contamination beyond the point of no return. Nitrogen contamination of soil and water is one type of irreparable environmental damage. Loss of biodiversity is another. UNCTAD suggests countries take urgent and far-reaching actions now before climate change causes major disruptions to agriculture. Jocelyn Sambira, UN Radio. South Sudan has launched a new airline comprising Boeing B737-300 aircraft. The airline has started international commercial flights with its maiden stop in neighboring Republic of Sudan's capital, Khartoum, with plans to spread its wings in future to other neighboring nations, Uganda, Kenya and Egypt. James Shimanyula reports. The newly launched airline is known as South Supreme Airline and operates Boeing 737-300 aircraft. According to Aid Wang Ai, chairman of the board of directors of the airline, South Supreme Airline plans to increase its flights by adding two 737-300. The launch of the airline comes less than two weeks after South Sudan president visited the Republic of the Sudan's capital Khartoum, where he held the crucial talks with his counterpart President Omar Hassan Ahmed el-Bashir. The talks led to resumption of close ties between Khartoum and Juba and saw the reopening of pipelines that transport oil to international markets through Khartoum's Port Sudan on the Red Sea. Before South Supreme Airline entered the international skies, 13 airlines dominated commercial flight operations between the South and the North. Each of the 13 airlines charged 300 US dollars one way from Juba to Khartoum and vice versa. Now the new South Supreme Airline charges only 230 US dollars for a similar trip. Johnny Manoko Apache, general manager of the airline, expresses his happiness at the launch of the airline in a country that has just marked two years since it became independent. We have got a lot of challenges here. To start business it takes quite a while. We have these austerity measures. Fuel prices are very high. Taxation is very high. And also capacity to operate this aircraft. We need more pilots. We need more engineers. We need more chemical. Disclosing the plan to extend the wings of the airline to other countries apart from Republic of the Sudan, Apache said. We are not going to end up with Khartoum alone. We have other regional flights like Antebe in Uganda. Nairobi in Kenya, Cairo in Egypt. Apache acknowledges that the new airline faces challenges. We have got a lot of challenges here. To start business, it takes quite a while. We have these austerity measures. Fuel prices are very high. Taxation is very high. And also capacity to operate this aircraft. We need more pilots. We need more engineers. We need more chemicals. The launch of the airline has been happily received by business people in the two Sudans. Athman Sanos, a businessman in Khartoum is one of them. By having many commercial flights to Khartoum actually gives opportunity for a lot of people to go visit and interact with their families. That was Athman Sanos, a businessman in Khartoum in the Republic of the Sudan. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. International experts dealing with elimination of leprosy have converged in Ethiopia's capital Addis Ababa to find ways of eliminating the stigma associated with the disease. Although countries still affected by the disease already have a cure for it, the post-treatment period is always a challenge to victims since already the society would have termed and treated them as outcasts. Koleta Wanjohi reports. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka, Na Unai.
Leprosy is among the world's oldest diseases. If left untreated, it can disfigure and result in permanent disability. While to some countries in the world this disease remains non-existent, cases of leprosy are still detected in many countries in Asia, Latin America and Africa. In Africa, the World Health Organization figures for the year 2011 show that there were 28,573 leprosy-affected people across Africa. Countries that are still affected include Ethiopia, Nigeria, Democratic Republic of Congo, Madagascar, Tanzania, Mozambique, Angola and Burundi. With the multi-drug therapy treatment offered freely to victims of leprosy, the disease is curable. But even after cure, patients still remain with fear of the society. A continental meeting was held in Ethiopia's capital Addis Ababa to discuss how to restore dignity to leprosy victims. The Prime Minister of Ethiopia, Haile Mariam Desalen, whose country is still struggling to totally eliminate leprosy, agrees that beyond treatment, a bigger challenge remains. We do not believe that people affected by leprosy should live in isolation or be shut away from their fellow citizens. They should be fully integrated and respected participants of their community. Today, although leprosy is curable, millions of people around the world are subjected to discrimination and social exclusion because they or members of their families have had the disease. The word leper is still widely used as a derogatory term to describe a tainted person or an outcast from society. This blatant and wholly unnecessary discrimination is considered a denial of basic human rights. Yohei Sasakawa, the World Health Organization Goodwill Ambassador for Leprosy Elimination, explains his experience. In my 40 years of working for the elimination of leprosy and its entailing stigma and discrimination, I have traveled the world and met with thousands of people affected by leprosy. Among them were those who remained silent out of fear that discrimination would multiply if they were to speak out for their human rights. A resolution passed by the United Nations General Assembly in the year 2011 passed a provision that persons affected by leprosy and their family members should be treated as individuals with dignity and are entitled to all human rights and fundamental freedoms under customary international law, relevant conventions and national constitutions and laws. Dr. Luis Gomez Sambo, the World Health Organization Regional Director for Africa, explains. Today, our common priority is to end stigma and discrimination by ensuring community participation and engagement. The time has come for governments, partners and communities to change the image of leprosy. This symposium held in Ethiopia is the third of five that are expected to raise awareness around the world that people who have had leprosy before are fit to be accepted and respected by the society. Kuleton Johi, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Fleet owners in South Africa are to be held liable for road carnage if their unroadworthy vehicles are involved in accidents. Road accidents cost the South African economy more than $31 billion annually. This is according to Transport Minister Dipuo Peters. She was addressing the media in Parliament about government's interventions to address the current road carnage in South Africa. Mercedes Percent reports. Dipua Peters outlined various plans in the fight against road fatalities, especially those which could have been prevented. Whether they are alcohol-related or as a result of unroadworthy vehicles and inexperienced drivers, Peters says interventions to curb road fatalities and all kinds of road accidents must be addressed as a matter of urgency. She was accompanied by those who head the various roads and transport agencies under her portfolio, including the Road Traffic Management Corporation and the Road Accident Fund. The minister says whether loss of life during an accident is caused by a company's unroadworthy truck or an unroadworthy vehicle of a fleet management company, they will also have to take responsibility. Responsibility towards road safety doesn't only rest with the driver but other parties such as fleet owners as well as passengers and pedestrians. Fleet owners have a responsibility to ensure the roadworthiness of their vehicles before assigning them to drivers. They also have a responsibility to ensure that their drivers do not drive long hours without rest and or under the influence of drugs and or alcohol. We will hold fleet owners accountable for collisions or crashes 
caused by unroadworthy vehicles under their fleet. Even driving schools will not be spared to ensure that they do not contribute to road accidents. Because if people think that driving school is just any other business, I can buy a car and then start teaching people to, to drive, then it means that is the wrong area to start at because it is just not a business. It is a center for me giving people a particular skill and if you want to make a quick buck, you're not going to make it in that area. So we would want to make sure that we strengthen the areas of regulations of the driving schools so that they can produce capable and competent uh, uh, drivers who are qualified to be on South African roads. According to Peters, the South African economy is currently losing more than 300 billion rands annually as a result of the carnage on the country's roads. She says with each road fatality, not only breadwinners are lost, but their families who are left behind and survivors also suffer the economic hardships. Surviving victims are faced with lifetime incapacity to fend for themselves due to severe injuries and disability. Research outcomes indicate that at least 306 billion rand is lost to the South African economy annually as a result of road crashes, fatal and otherwise. This cost includes loss of manpower or skills due to the fatalities and injuries, emergency medical services, post-crash services such as road repairs and cleanup operations. The road accident fund alone pays out at least 15 billion rand to victims of road crashes each year. She says even mop-up operations after accidents are costing the economy due to the delays experienced by road closures. The minister says as part of the interventions, she has established an intergovernmental team of experts to probe sustainable interventions into road crashes in South Africa. Peter says her department will next month hold a road safety summit to come up with plans on how to improve road safety on South African roads. She emphasized that the fight against road carnage cannot be fought by law enforcement officers alone. She's calling on civil society and the private sector to participate. Mercedes Besend, Parliament. With Sani Matabula standing by with our economics news. Thanks, Lulu. Speakers from different companies and organizations from Africa are meeting in Senton, north of Johannesburg today, to discuss the new growth path for the continent. The Africa Frontiers Forum seeks to discuss topical issues facing Africa on a regular basis. African growth has traditionally been resource-determined and more recently contributed to by consumer spending. CEO of Frontier Advisory, Martin Davis, says uh, the emerging driver of regional growth will be infrastructure spending in the same way that it has underpinned the growth models of many emerging market economies like China. South African Transport Minister Ripua Peters says the country's economy is losing more than $30 billion annually as a result of carnage on the roads. Peters was addressing the media in Parliament. She says it's not only lives which are lost during horrible accidents. Mercedes Percent reports. Peter says with each road fatality, not only breadwinners are lost, but their families who are left behind and survivors too, also suffer the economic hardships due to the road accidents. Surviving victims are faced with lifetime incapacity to fend for themselves due to severe injuries and disability. Research outcomes indicate that at least 306 billion rand is lost to the South African economy annually as a result of road crashes, fatal and otherwise. She says even mop-up operations during accidents are costing the economy due to the delays caused by road closures. Meanwhile, South African media company Naspas, uh, the highest price share on the Johannesburg Stock Exchange is approaching the $100 a share mark today. Naspas share price dropped 4% to $91 yesterday, but holds a significant lead over the second highest uh, price share on the JSE, that is a uh, British American tobacco, which is at uh, $53 per share. Even though Naspas is the highest uh, price share, analysts are still bullish regarding the growth of the multimedia group following gains in a Associate Asian Internet Company Tencent, in which uh, Naspers holds a 35% stake. Tencent's value could rise further 
as it's one of the three dominant internet groups in China. However, Naspers faces two risks in that uh, currency movements will affect its valuation given it clo- its close ties with Tencent and the possibility of Chinese government approving Facebook's entry into the country. South African Post Office says uh, lower mail volumes and labor unrest have uh, contributed to a reduction in profits. The state-owned company has reported a $10 million loss in revenue. The withdrawal of government subsidy resulted in the group's expenditure exceeding revenue. Chris Legani is a South African Post Office CEO. The level of, of, of loss of subsidy has to be noted, and we're engaging um, our shareholder, ICASA as a regulator, in terms of how do we find an appropriate approach when it comes to delivering service obligations um, going forward. Because we have to ensure that our services are delivered to South Africans at large. Now, the right balance between that um, approach between ourselves and ICASA and the level to which our business generate value, it's where we need to find ourselves at as business. Senegal's economy is, is expected to grow 4.6% next year, up from 4% this year. This is due to mining, infrastructure spending, and abundant rainfall that could boost crops. Inflation will remain modest at around 2%, but government will struggle to cut the deficit to its target of 4.6% of the GDP. However, the West African nation's fiscal outlook has been affected by shortfalls in tax revenue. Still in West Africa, Ghana Central Bank left its benchmark in interest rate and change for a second consecutive meeting to counter sluggish growth by the country's weaker currency, the city. The policy rate is kept at 16%. The decision was in line with the focus of all six analysts survey by Bloomberg. West Africa's second biggest economy is forecast by government to grow by 8% this year from 7.9% last year. Financial indicators, the dollar at 9.78 to the rand at 8.36, Botswana Pulas and at 5.28, Zambian Quaches. Also trading at 0.62 to the British pound at 0.74 to the euro, platinum $1,466 and gold $1,360 a fine ounce and the price of Brent crude oil hovering at around $111.25 a barrel. And that's how it's looking. Thank you, Wisani. Figula Lingwati standing by with our sports update. Starting off with f- football news, South African national soccer team coach Gordon Agerson has welcomed the 2014 Championship of African Nations, the Chan draw, which will pit his side against neighbours Mozambique, Mali and Nigeria. Agerson, reacting to the draw conducted in Cairo on Wednesday, says it is a tough draw, probably the toughest of the four groups, and says playing at, uh, playing at home rather should galvanise the team to do well. The Chan tournament is an event for locally based players only and will take place in South Africa from the 11th of January to the 1st of February next year. South Africa opens the account against neighbours Mozambique on the 11th of January, followed by a clash with Mali four days later and completes the group stages against Nigeria on the 19th of January. And the South African and African Champions League title holders al Ahly, head coach Mohamed Youssef, has announced his 21-man squad for their match against Orlando Pirates next Sunday in a day six of the group stage of the African Champions League. Yusuf didn't call his deadly attacker Imad Mateb, who is still suffering from a back injury. Yusuf says he wanted to call Imad, but he is still not fit. He says he just wants to win the match against Orlando Pirates for two reasons. The first is to end on the top of the group. The second is to revenge their first defeat against them in El Guna. Al-Akhli qualified to the semi-final after the victory over their arch-rival Zamalek 4-2 last Sunday with 10 points. And finally, South African rugby side Blue Bulls coach Pine Pinar 
has made eight changes to his team to play against the Golden Lions in the Absa Country Cup encounter at Ellis Park on Saturday. When announcing his team at Loftus First Field, Binar says some of the changes are rotational and some are injury enforced. It's a matter of yeah, the, it's a matter of a rotation where we want to give a player an opportunity to, to have a go. That player hopefully is a player that's hungry, it's a player that, that wants to come and make a difference. So I think on prop we are pretty fortunate where we have five good props, actually six, if you, if you count in John's Kuman, and then on a, on a five lock uh, we have three brilliant five locks. Unfortunately a guy like David is playing well, but again I, I rotated him and Wilhelm come after two games. Uh, you know, Wilhelm didn't do anything wrong, uh, so I rotated them a bit and I want to give Wilhelm an opportunity this week on a five. And uh, again, a guy with experience and he knows the structures really well. And uh, Grant on a bench, we're looking at Grant to cover loose forward as well for us in a game. So uh, that's, that's the only reason for that. And a guy like uh, Mornay Millet, I thought he played really well before he got injured. And a guy like Werner uh, took a rest last week and you know, he's fresh as well, hopefully. And coming in against, uh, I presume, probably one of the most experienced one, twos and threes that you're going to get in the competition, BS, CJ and, and Willie. So I think coming will be for us a massive challenge this week and that's why we went with that way. That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorba. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at this hour. New report details gross human rights abuses in the Central African Republic and Zimbabwean opposition leader rejects pressure to resign. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuzora Magaza, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905. Taking us to the top of the hour for the News is Kajanin with Sambolera.
Good morning and welcome to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. I am Sydney Katungapiri. Coming up this hour we have Let's Talk About It and Our Heritage. But first, let's cross over to the news desk for the latest news from Africa and abroad. In the headlines, armed Mali groups agreed to peace talks. Morgan Changarwa refuses to resign following his July election defeat. And Angolan police vowed to use force if necessary to crack down on an anti-government protest today. Aman Musa, good morning. Armed factions from Mali's desert communities have committed to peace talks to end an 18-month crisis triggered by a Tuareg uprising. The groups made the statement after a three-day meeting in the capital, Bamako. The meeting was organized by the main Tuareg separatist organizations with the Arab movement of Azawad and the mainly black United Forces of Patriotic Resistance. They presented an agreement committing to hold talks with President Ibrahim Boubacar Keita. Zimbabwe's opposition leader Morgan Changarai has rejected mounting pressure from within his party and externally to resign following his July election defeat. The latest call come from a South African-based group representing Zimbabweans in the diaspora. It has urged leaders of the two Movement for Democratic Change factions to step aside from fresh leadership.